millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi there again and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Today I want to talk about 
two pivotal figures in post-war American foreign policy, the Dulles brothers. Um, The reason why I want to talk about them is because uh, sometimes it's important to steer away from this idea uh, of the President of the United States as being the the kind of the, the alpha and the omega of uh, policy creation, uh, international policy, uh, foreign policy creation. The Dulles brothers, who um, are, you know, not unknown, but uh, far uh, far less high-profile figures in post-war um, uh, post-war uh, foreign policy analysis than, say, for example, Kissinger. Um, the the Dulles brothers had an outsized role in shaping uh, America, um, American foreign policy, uh, American Cold War policy uh, during uh, the 1950s. Um, And in uh, a kind of extremely radically um, right-wing direction, Uh, the far more so than, than Eisenhower, um, the the Dulles brothers, in fact, represented um, ideas that were probably right at the kind of the very edge of, of Eisenhower's thinking. It's not that Eisenhower uh, wasn't above overthrowing governments and things like that, but um, the enthusiasm that the Dulles brothers had for it. Uh, John Foster Dulles as Secretary of State, uh, and um, the and Alan Dulles as the uh, director of the CIA. It was was really, uh, really, really quite quite profound, and and shaped um, American foreign policy uh, and the workings of the CIA uh, significantly uh, over the over the the, the coming decades. So today, what we're we're looking at is Grand Expectations by James Patterson, which is a, a kind of a, a general reader in post-war American history. It's a pretty, a pretty good uh, standard first text on the period 1945 to 74. But you know, if you want to go deeper, you you, you do need to read other stuff. But anyway, here we are. So he writes, Eisenhower's most important appointee. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles seemed at first to be a sound, indeed almost inevitable choice for the position. Dulles was the grandson of John Foster, President Benjamin Harrison's Secretary of State, and a nephew of Robert Lansing, who had held the post under Woodrow Wilson. Dulles had been personally concerned with the internet, with international relations, for almost fifty years, and had been uh, and had uh, attended the Paris Peace Conference after World War One. He uh, had then become an influential attorney in New York and was part of the establishment network of well-placed lawyers and bankers who formulated post-war American foreign policy. In selecting Dulles, Eisenhower told his chief aide, Sherman Adams, Foster has been in training for this job all his life. He reminded Emmett Hughes, There's only one man I know who's seen more of the world and talked with more people and knows more than he does, and that's me. Uh, so you have um, Dulles, who's this kind of foreign policy insider. He had uh, been at the Paris Peace Conference four decades before, forty-five years before. Um, he had uh, been um, a, a kind of a, a significant player, even when not in government, um, in the, the shaping of uh, foreign policy. And it's interesting the point it makes here, uh, which is very valid that. 
a sort of a small kind of talking shop of lawyers and bankers uh, were those who shaped uh, America's um, post-war foreign policies, particularly around trade, around debt, around the Bretton Woods institutions um, uh, and the the, the kind of the foreign policy priorities are are rarely made uh, initially within the confines of the White House. They're, They're made outside of it and in various conversations with that the presidents have with um, wealthy interest groups and the people within their social circles, these ideas um, kind of come to the uh, come to the fore. Um, if you, I mean, a classic, more contemporary example would be the late nineteen nineties project from New American uh, Generation, uh, a project for a New American Century. Um, which uh, PNAC is something really, really important to uh, to look up, and it's the obviously the um, uh, the guiding structure of uh, the, the guiding document of U.S. foreign policy all the way up to the present day. From the beginning, however, Dulles became a lightning rod for criticisms of Republican foreign policies. This was in part because he seemed extraordinarily influential. Some contemporaries, indeed, were sure that Dulles was the power behind the throne and that Ike merely acquiesced into whatever Dulles uh, devised. This was not the case. Eisenhower made all all the uh, the important policy decisions himself. Indeed, the president was at times bored and irritated by Dulles, who tended to be preachy in meetings. The Secretary of State, Ike said on one occasion, has a lawyer's mind and tended to act like a sort of international prosecuting attorney. But critics of Dulles were correct in recognising that Eisenhower relied heavily on his secretary, who was a hard worker, knowledgeable and who um, uh, and, lo- and, and wholly loyal in trying to carry out the president's goals. For these re- uh, reasons, and because Eisenhower did not always monitor his subordinates closely, Dulles enjoyed considerable leeway in initiative. He held office, enjoying the president's confidence until he grew ill with cancer and had to resign in April 1959. Only then did Eisenhower step forward more boldly on his own as the spokesman for American foreign policy interests. Critics who took aim at Dulles fired off many grievances. They emphasised, first of all, that he was moralistic and self-righteous. This was often true. Dulles, the son of a Presbyterian minister, was influential in national church affairs. His strong Christian faith strengthened his distaste for communism, which he deplored as atheistic as well as unprincipled. Moreover, Dulles seemed humorous, at least on the job. Self-assured and pompous, he had a habit of looking towards the ceiling. Some critics thought towards God, hands hands calmly folded on his desk while talking, critics said pontificating at considerable length. Other critics simply described his manner as dull, duller, dullis. What most irritated liberal opponents was Dulles' apparently inflexible and ideological anti-communism. This helped him acquiesce to McCarthy-inspired efforts to purge the State Department of alleged subversives and appeasers. I.F. Stone, the liberal journalist, called him McCarthy's Secretary of State. While this charge was inaccurate, the critics were mostly correct in focusing his on his anti-communist zeal. For Dulles, more than contemporary political um, leaders believed that the communist ideology, rather than strategic interests, 
determine Soviet behaviour and that the Soviet Union had there, therefore had a grand design. So this is really interesting um, that Dulles was one of the uh, key drivers of a kind of a variant of, of McCarthyism, this idea of the grand design, the conspiracy theory, the idea that at, at all places around the globe and at all times, communist subversion was some uh, evil plot that threatens to kind of overthrow um, liberal bourgeois capitalism. Um, this is a, it's an idea that sort of still, even in the post-Cold War years, still kind of hasn't quite gone away. It has morphed into uh, different conspiracy theories and uh, ideas about kind of cultural Marxism and all this other crazy stuff. But it, it still exists, um, or a kind of a, a vein of it, um, and it, it, it appeals to those who uh, imagine that um, the, the world is a place of kind of en endless threat and conspiracy. And the, the, the realities about um, Soviet intentions uh, after 1945 are often a lot more mundane. Um, Stalin, um, after probably the Berlin airlift, imagined that there was there was little opportunity or scope for kind of expansion or subversion, and he was becoming progressively more interested in shoring up his own empire against people like uh, like Tito and um, uh, Mao, who were taking wildly different directions in what they imagined communism to be. So the grand design is always a kind of an, an overstated concept. Uh, perceiving issues on, in ideological terms, Dulles could be pickily legalistic when dealing with other political leaders. Some of those leaders were infuriated by his manner. Churchill said that Dulles was the only case of a bull I know who carried his own china shop with him. The journalist James Reston uh, added that Dulles doesn't stumble into booby traps. He digs them to size, studies them carefully, and then jumps in. Analysis of Dulles' ideas uh, and activities by historians has uh, slightly softened this acidic portrait. Dulles was in fact politically shrewd, anxious to escape the vilification of the GOP right that he had, sa that, that, that had savaged um, Dean Acheson. He worked hard at protecting his standing with Conservatives in Congress, a very important consideration. It was also clear that Dulles was no more inflexible than Acheson, or, the, the, or than the Truman administration generally, which had initially, which had initiated no serious negotiating with the Soviet Union or China in many years. Dulles's style may have seemed more rigid, but in the end, the result was much the same: more hardening of the Cold War. These reminders are useful. Still, few contemporaries saw a flexible, subtle side to Dulles. Publicly, in negotiations, he was mostly stern and unbending, with a harsh edge uh, that not even Aitchison had matched. Indeed, Dulles seemed an eager spokesman for a new administration that regularly denounced the Democrats as being soft on communism. And, and this was the key to uh, undermining uh, Truman. It had been the key to uh, bringing down... Um, the the Democrats uh, who had been in power since 1932. 
the uh, weapon that could be most easily used against them was that of national defence, that of being soft on communism. The fact that there had been a post-war, uh, a, a wartime alliance with the Soviet Union, that after the war, communism had spread throughout Eastern Europe, it had uh, spread through China, China had been lost, This was uh, there had been uh, multiple retreats that had been seen to happen on, on, on the democratic front, and there was always this kind of accus- lingering accusation of, well, how friendly had the Democrats really been? How friendly had Roosevelt really been with the communists? during the war and what connections were there between the communist administration uh, the the, uh, democrat administration um, the uh, Roosevelt presidency and the Kremlin and the the fact is that in in some instances there were clear connections, people like Harry Dexter White for example and um, the the post-war Venona decrypts um, suggested that there were numerous uh, active Soviet agents in America at the end of the Second World War. So it was it was easy to be able to kind of fish through this sort of hodgepodge of evidence and create a conspiracy theory that the Democrats were somehow inclined towards the Communists, which is is you know obviously ludicrous, um, and there is no basis in fact for that. But often in the, the kind of the, the ruthless business of modern politics, there doesn't have to be a basis, in fact, for very much at all. The Central Intelligence Agency, headed by Foster Dulles's young brother, Alan, was equally anti-communist. The agency, created in 1947, had grown slowly prior to the Korean War. But it had received authorization to conduct covert operations as early as 1948, using it to intervene at that, um, <clears throat> at that time in Italian politics. And it grew rapidly in the early 1950s. By 1952, its budget had risen to over 82 million, its personnel to 2,812, plus additional 3,142 overseas contract personnel, and its number of foreign stations from 7 to 45, 47. Sorry. Under Eisenhower, Alan Dulles, a pipe-smoking bon vivant, who was charming, popular uh, with Congress and well-connected socially as well as politically, it grew into an important government agency. The CIA had its first significant impact in the Eisenhower years. In the summer of 1953, it led a successful coup in Iran against Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, which um, earned the enmity of British leaders by nation- uh, who had earned the enmity of British leaders by nationalising their oil interests in 1951. The coup replaced Mossadegh with the pro-Western Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, who agreed to a new charter that gave British and American oil interests 40% each of Iranian oil revenues. The Shah received a package of American economic and aid worth 85 million. In June 1954, the CIA intervened again, and this time uh, in Guatemala, in an effort to help rebels overthrow Colonel Jacobo Arbenz Guzman, um, the legally installed leader of the country. Arbenz Guzman's mistake had been to promote land reform by expropriating with it, with compensation, significant acreage of American the American-owned United Fruit Company. Unbeknownst to the American people, CIA pilots joined in bombing raids that may have helped the coup to succeed. Eisenhower, fearing the spread of communism in Central America, was highly pleased with the result. My God, he told his cabinet, 
just think what it would mean to us if Mexico went communist. Because both of these coups were quickly and rather easily accomplished, and because some of the CIA's involvement remained secret, they did not attract great attention from the American press. This was unfortunate for several reasons. Firstly, the coups exacerbated internal divisions in these countries with disastrous long-range consequences for the people there. Secondly, the coups indicated the willingness of reporters that, uh, at that time, and critically, to accept obfuscatory CIA cover stories. It was not until the late 1950s when a U-2 reconnaissance plane under the control of the CIA was shot down over the Soviet Union that significant numbers of reporters began to display a healthy distrust of the self-serving government, self government handouts. Third, it was obvious that the coups involved well-placed economic interests. A thorough public discussion of these interests would have been useful in exposing the material forces that helped drive America's Cold War behaviour. Fourth, the coups convinced the CIA and other government officials that covert actions were easily carried out. In the next few years, it conducted other such operations in Japan, Indonesia and the Belgian Cong uh, Congo. The bravado that such efforts engendered was to prove disastrous in later years. The coups were revealing in other ways as well. Americans who read about them seemed delighted with what they were allowed to know of the CIA activity. The CIA leader in, Ira leader in Iran, Kermit Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt's grandson, was acclaimed as a hero. Americans seemed unconcerned that the interventions violated sovereign rights. Foster Dulles was hardly challenged when he went on radio and TV following the coup in Guatemala to call it a new and glorious chapter in the, in, in, for all the people of the Americas. Above all, the coups indicated the power of Cold War thought and action within the Eisenhower administration. Top officials argued that the communist elements linked to Moscow uh, were key forces behind the, um, uh, both Mossadegh and Arbenz Guthman. This was not so. Though Mossadegh belatedly turned to the Iranian Communist Party for help in order to bolster himself, he was fundamentally a nationalist. Arbenz Guthman was a reformer, not a communist. But the Dulles brothers easily convinced themselves and many others that communism lay at the root of international unrest. The coups in Iran and Guatemala revealed the key figures in the, uh, the key figures in the Eisenhower administration, um, perceiving the world in black and white had at best a dim awareness of the appeal of nationalism and anti-colonialism throughout the world. Then and later, American officials would demonstrate this profound misunderstanding. So this, of course, colours um, most, uh, most of US foreign policy in the Cold War period. This inability to recognise that um, events in Vietnam were largely of a nationalist or a national liberationist nature um, that for the most part Vietnamese Buddhist peasants had little interest in or understanding of the works of Karl Marx or Vladimir Lenin uh, and, and instead were interested in a more equitable distribution of the land and um, fewer uh, or no uh, foreign intervention in their country um, and a, a sort of an end to the um, imposition of Catholicism uh, on Vietnam, a uh, you know almost uh, largely Buddhist country. So 
these are the kind of the, the, the facts on the ground that motivate uh, motivated most of um, you know post-war decolonization um, communism uh, was you know largely uh, a kind of um, a secondary a, a secondary factor and there were all sorts of opportunities particularly in the story of Vietnam to um, create outcomes that might not have necessitated a communist regime in the north but the uh, black and white view of the world the way in which the Dulles brothers perceived things um, and they were not alone in the White House they were not alone in uh, Washington DC in seeing things in the in this way um, actually exacerbated the tensions of, of the Cold War and the um, the moral capital that America seemed to enjoy at the end of the Second World War was quickly eroded throughout the 1950s and 60s uh, particularly by CIA covert actions because the individuals that the, um, the CIA helped into power were inevitably the, uh, the the brutal anti-communist strongmen, the the people who would drench countries in blood in order to smash trade unions, in order to eliminate the uh, communist party. Pete figures such as Sukarno in uh, Indonesia, uh, figures such as Batista in Cuba, um, and the the indifference. Uh, of the um, the American foreign policy establishment that worked on the idea that well they may be a bastard but they are our bastard um, and they are not the other sides. This is the sort of the, the, the key distinction. It doesn't matter what they do as long as you have a, a and it doesn't really particularly matter if you have somebody who isn't a democrat who isn't going to uphold liberal democracy but what they are going to do is they're going to remove the challenges to the the, the global order that is being reshaped after 1945 they are the people that are going to remove the um the the, the, the trade unions in countries that want better uh working conditions higher wages that will disrupt these sort of sensitive price signals um, uh, for labour, they are going to um, crack down on uh, nationalist movements such as um, I- I- Iranian nationalism that says our oil belongs to Iran and it- its revenue should pay for um, a- you know infrastructure and social services in Iran and, and-, and that kind of thing. Um, going back last week, um, looking at. Um, the uh, Panitch um, and uh, Sam Gindin's book, uh, the making of, of global capitalism. The uh, this was a, another part of the creation of the architecture of post-war global capitalism. These coups didn't happen for uh, any other reason, really, than they are expedient to American and then latterly first world economic and um, geopolitical power um, otherwise they wouldn't have occurred so the, the, the Dulles brothers as twin ideologues had 
an enormous amount to um, an enormous amount to uh, as their kind of legacy really uh, that shaped um, that shaped Cold War politics. Nothing did more to sharpen, writes um, James Patterson, the tough-minded image of the Eisenhower administration and Foster Dulles' pronouncement of a massive retaliation policy in January 1954. The free world, he said, had properly tried to contain communism with measures such as the Marshall Plan, the Berlin Airlift and the dispatch of troops to Korea, but these were inadequate emergency reactions. Moreover, the free world could not match the mighty land power of the communist world... Um, instead, it must take the initiative and rely on the massive retaliatory power. The nation should depend primarily upon the great capacity to retaliate instantly by means and at places of our choosing. This would be more. Uh, this would be more basic security at less cost. Dulles went on to say that warnings of such massive retaliation, nuclear weapons, if you didn't pick up on the subtext there, um, had brought the Chinese to heel in Korea in 1953. The secretary seemed to be proposing that an administration uh, brandish nuclear weapons whenever confronted by an enemy. The the idea that that statement that the Chinese were brought to heel by the nuclear threat in 1953 is highly debatable, shall we say, highly debatable. Um, Dulles was not simply indulging in his fondness for stern and uh, grandiloquent phrases. On the contrary, the National Security Council, which became much more important in policy making during the Eisenhower administration, had reconsidered defence doctrine. Uh, uh, had reconsidered defence doctrine in 1953 and had approved NSC 162/2 on October the 30th. This document emphasised the need for a nuclear-based strategy and for cost-cutting, mainly of ground-based forces in defence spending. Eisenhower had read Dulles' speech in advance and had apparently penned in the key passage uh, calling for a policy based on a capacity to retaliate instantly by means and at places of our own choosing. Massive retaliation. The new look, contemporaries called it, was carefully conceived it was a carefully conceived administration policy and we shall talk more about that in coming weeks about the the new look policy uh, around uh, nuclear first anyway thanks very much for listening do keep checking out explaininghistory.org there is more new stuff for students going on at the moment i'm putting on plenty of content for students of the russian revolution so go and check it out thanks very much all the best everyone bye bye
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.